he told another parable to them. The kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed that someone took and planted in the field. It's the smallest of all seeds. But when it's grown, it's the largest of all vegetable plants. It becomes a tree so that the birds in the sky come and nest in its branches. He told them another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like yeast, which a woman took and hid in a bushel of wheat flour until the yeast had worked its way through all the dough. The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure that somebody hid in a field, which someone else found and covered up. Full of joy, the finder sold everything and bought that field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls. When he found one very precious pearl, he went and sold all that he owned and bought it. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a net that people threw into the lake and gathered all kinds of fish. When it was full, they pulled it to the shore where they sat down and put the good fish together into containers, but the bad fish they threw away. That's the way it will be at the end of the present age. The angels will go out and separate the evil people from the righteous people and will throw the evil ones into a burning furnace. People there will be weeping and grinding their teeth. Have you understood all these things? Jesus asked. They said to him, yes. Then he said to him, therefore, every legal expert who has been trained as a disciple for the kingdom of heaven is like the head of a household who brings old and new things out of their treasure chest. Friends, this is the word of God for us, the people of God. Amen. Let us pray. O Lord, let the words of my mouth and the thoughts and meditations of all of our hearts be pleasing in your sight. For you, O Lord, are our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Claudette Colvin may not be a household name for many. She was a high school student in 1955 in Montgomery, Alabama. And she was on the way home from school on the afternoon of March 2nd of that year on the city bus. When a white woman walked on the crowded bus, the bus driver asked Claudette to give up her seat. And Claudette refused to give up her seat. She was arrested, taken to jail, and scared as a 15-year-old girl. Claudette refused to give up her bus seat nine months prior to Rosa Parks doing the same. Claudette had been learning that month about black history in school, about the bravery of Harriet Tubman leading slaves to freedom, about the courage of Sojourner Truth, who as a freed slave became an abolitionist and women's rights advocate. We tend to know the names of a few who the history books and tests that we have to take remind us of. So we know the names in civil rights of Martin Luther King and Rosa Parks and Malcolm X. If we study the history a little deeper, we might even know names like Medgar Evers and Fannie Lou Hamer and Ralph Abernathy. But very few knew the name Claudette Colvin. She was only 15. Later on that year, she ended up pregnant. She was just Claudette. Jesus opens our scripture today with two parables held side by side. It seems like Jesus did this a fair amount of time, parables told in pairs. The parables had similar themes, but they might strike someone a little bit differently. So today we're going to look at two of these pairs of parables together, and we will ask ourselves, what is Jesus saying to us about God's kingdom? We open with the mustard seed. This is a favorite of children's sermons everywhere. 
because you can find a real-life mustard seed no bigger than a piece of dried rosemary and help the children imagine how it becomes a small tree. Amazing. But the mustard plant was warned against being planted in Jesus' day, for the mustard plant would take over an entire area. Yes, it grows into a bush that is big enough for the birds to perch on and even make a nest in. And that's not usually what you expected when you put a little herb in your herb garden, right? But but it would come to take over. We have an oregano plant like this on the side of my house. We don't tend to use a ton of oregano in my house. But, of course, the oregano is what keeps growing, and it keeps overtaking the other things. And because of our wonderful weeding practices that I talked about two weeks ago, it just keeps going and overtaking. Mustard was kind of like that. Then Jesus tells the parable of the yeast, or the parable of the leaven. Now, we might think this is just a parable that describes a simple process of a small amount of yeast rising a large amount of flour. But here's the thing. Leaven was considered unclean in all of Jewish culture. So Jesus tells a parable about this unclean thing, and he is clearly using it positively to describe this growth. And then the amount of flour that is used is staggeringly large. We're talking about an abundance of flour, enough for bread for 150 people. This is commercial bakery status that Jesus is talking about. So what is Jesus saying about the kingdom in these two parables? I think he's saying a lot about how the kingdom is small, or at least how it begins small. First, God's kingdom is small and hidden. In both of these cases, you don't see the tiny kingdom at the start. The mustard seed is nearly microscopic, and it germinates underground. The yeast is a tiny amount, and you don't see it when it's worked into the flour. Jesus seems to be saying that the kingdom is hidden like that. It's not noticeable at first. It doesn't draw attention to itself. But he's also saying that the kingdom is small And it takes over. Like I said, the mustard seed was hated because of how it took over an entire garden. It was like an invasive species in the plant world. The yeast creeping into the dough would cause the entire batch to rise. Once the yeast is worked into the bread, there is no stopping it. The yeast is alive, causing active cultures and rising. And once God's kingdom begins its work, Jesus is saying, there is no stopping it. It seems like Jesus is possibly even the woman in his picture, working the yeast into the dough through parables and miracles and through modeling what God's kingdom is like. The kingdom is small, and it's also to some degree unclean, Jesus says. For Jesus is not just using the example of small things, specifically in using leaven or in yeast. Jesus is intentionally using a thing traditionally considered unclean. Jesus recognizes that the ways of the kingdom are going to be off-putting to the religious establishment who was so concerned about what was unclean and clean. But even more, the people who would come into following the way of Jesus' kingdom would be considered unclean. They were the lepers the tax collectors, the marginalized of society, and they are all mixed up into this huge bread that God is making into God's kingdom. As a culture, 
We love big and shiny things. We love the newness of unwrapping a new tech device, feeling that we have the world at our fingertips. We love the appeal of a bigger house or a new car. We even have a smell for it, right? We like churches that are big and shiny too, the ones that look like shopping malls with food courts and play places for the kids. But Jesus seems to be saying the kingdom begins with the small. In the mustard seed and the yeast, we learn that God's kingdom is unassuming. What are the small and unassuming ways of the kingdom? Who are the unassuming people who are actually leaders in God's way? Where are the marginalized and the outsiders, the very people who Jesus called and invited into God's kingdom? The next set of twin parables focuses on a different aspect of God's kingdom. If the first pair's emphasis was on how small and unassuming the kingdom begins, the second pair focuses on the valuable nature of God's kingdom. We hear these two parables about the treasure and about the pearl back to back. They are so often held together that I kind of conflate them in my brain because they're so short. The parable of the treasure is about a person who found a treasure hidden in a field. Now, in the culture of Jesus' day, especially when political and economic mistrust existed, not that that would ever exist today, people would take their valuables and place them in a jar and bury them in their yard. And whoever owned the field owned the contents of the entire property. So this parable doesn't seem to to be about a conniving way to steal something, as much as it's about the value of the treasure. And in the next parable, we learn of a merchant searching for a fine pearl. In that culture, a pearl was the most prized of all possessions. It was like an exquisite diamond would be today, and it must have been exceedingly rare. In these parables, we learn some things about the nature of God's kingdom. First, God's kingdom is valuable and worth seeking. I mean, part of these stories lend themselves to us thinking about a treasure hunt. Now, in one case, it seems like the person who found the treasure in the field was literally like working in the field and tripped on the treasure. They weren't planning on finding treasure that day when they woke up, but they did, however, and it changed the course of their entire life. The merchant, though, was on a daily pearl hunt. I wonder if he had been searching for decades for this elusive pearl So he woke up day in and day out looking again for this pearl. Either way seems fine to Jesus. Whether you trip on it or whether you're searching for it day in and day out, the key is finding the treasure, finding the pearl. So there is something about the hunt and seeking God's kingdom out. But we also see that God's kingdom is valuable and worth our all. In both of these stories, the person who finds the treasure gives up everything for it. They hold nothing back because they realize that they have completely hit the jackpot. Jesus often talks about this, how God's kingdom requires everything from us. And it's worth everything. The message of giving up everything for the kingdom makes us all squirm a little bit. Everything? can we hold back some parts of ourselves? What does it mean to give up everything? 
In his classic work, The Cost of Discipleship, Dietrich Bonhoeffer talks about this. And he shows the difference between what he calls cheap grace and costly grace. I want you to hear these words. Cheap grace means grace sold on the market like cheap jacks wares. The sacraments, the forgiveness of sin, and the consolations of religion are thrown away at cut prices. Grace is represented as the church's inexhaustible treasury from which she showers blessings with generous hands without asking questions or fixing limits. Grace without price, grace without cost. The essence of grace, we suppose, is that the account has been paid in advance. And because it has been paid, everything can be had for nothing. Since the cost was infinite, the possibilities of using and spending it are infinite. What will grace be if it were not cheap? Cheap grace is the preaching of forgiveness without requiring repentance, baptism without church discipline, communion without confession, absolution without personal confession. Cheap grace is grace without discipleship, grace without the cross, grace without Jesus Christ living and incarnate. Bonhoeffer then goes on to describe the difference between that cheap grace and costly grace. Costly grace is the treasure hidden in the field. For the sake of it, a man will go and sell all that he has. It is the pearl of great price to buy, which the merchant will sell all his goods. Such grace is costly because it calls us to follow. And it is grace because it calls us to follow Jesus Christ. It is costly because it costs a man his life. And it is grace because it gives a man the only true life. It is costly because it condemns sin and grace because it justifies the sinner. Above all, it is costly because it costs God the life of his son. You were bought at a price. And what has cost God much cannot be cheap for us. Above all, it is grace because God did not reckon his son too dear a price to pay for our life, but delivered him up for us. End quote. I want you to hear within those differences. I invite you to look up Bonhoeffer about cheap grace and costly grace. It's the kind of core of that work that he's written. Friends, grace is indeed free. But grace is not cheap. As the great hymn, When I Survey the Wondrous Cross, closes, love so amazing, so divine, demands my soul, my life, my all. If the first two parables display the unassuming nature of God's kingdom because it starts small, the second two describe the urgency of the kingdom because of how valuable it is. In both of these parables, the finder of the treasures follows the same pattern. They find what they're looking for. They sell and then they buy. The person recognizes the kingdom of God in their midst. They discover it and it blows them away. This leads to a reversal of their values. They sell everything else they had that they considered important before, which leads to the crucial action that obtains the new thing. They buy the field. They buy the pearl. This is costly grace in action. It is full of joy and it is urgent. Claudette Colvin ended up being a member of the lawsuit that ultimately led to the overturning of the segregated buses in Montgomery. Claudette lived almost her entire life unrecognized by history books and by most of America. Claudette, however, performed an unassuming action, sitting on that bus with urgency. 
She knew the consequences and was prepared to face them and to take a stand. Had Claudette not sat down, the NAACP leader Rosa Parks, who was in her 30s, may not have sat down either. This seemingly insignificant 15-year-old, who had very little to gain by taking this action, was like a mustard seed, like yeast, like someone recognizing the treasure and the pearl in the field and giving up everything for it. May you see the small and unassuming ways of the kingdom today. And may you seek out the valuable kingdom of God, one that urgently demands our lives when we find it. Amen.